If you have a Bible uh, on your phone or in your hand somewhere, go ahead and turn to the book of John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be for a little bit today, John chapter 20. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. Back in 2010, I had the privilege for the first time to take a group of uh, 20-somethings and older adults over to the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. And we spent a week in the slum of Mathari. Now, I want to show you a picture of this because Mathari is about a five-kilometer area that is packed with about a million people. That's about how many people live there. And so we would travel from our hotel about 35 minutes away. We would go there every day, and we would spend all day working in the slums, and then we would go back each evening. And so what happened is one evening we were wrapping up, and one of the the Kenyan church members that we were with asked myself and our driver, who looked a lot like Morgan Freeman, by the way, I... I don't think it was him, but I was curious. He asked him, he said, can you give, us a, give me a ride back at least partway towards where I live? Because otherwise I'm going to be walking and taking public transportation. And, and we both were like, yeah, sure, no problem. So we load up. Now I want you to understand, how many of you have driven in a third world country? Yeah, me neither. And so what happened is, it's like picture New York City minus the traffic lights, the cops, and the infrastructure. That, that's kind of what it was like. And so we end up out on the road, and I realized that I don't know my way around at all, but I realized we were going back a different way than where we had come from every other day. And so what happened is we went down the street, and we turned this corner, and have you ever been in a moment where you, like, you realize that, that you thought something was just lighthearted, and then all of a sudden it gets really serious really quickly? Like your family Easter dinner is going to happen tonight? Like that? Okay, so that's, that's kind of what happened. We pulled onto this street, and all at once we found ourselves in this throng of traffic. I'm telling you, I've never seen people or traffic like this before. I want to show you a picture. This is not from that day, but this is that neighborhood. This is a neighborhood called East Lee. Okay, Eastley is a part of Nairobi, and what happened is we ended up stuck in a traffic jam right in the middle of this. Now, I want you to know that while our driver looked a lot like Morgan Freeman, at this point, he started to look like a stressed out Morgan Freeman, okay? And he began to, in their language, argue with the Kenyan church member. Now, if you've never been on a mission trip, you don't want the church members arguing passionately with your driver. That's not a good sign that things are going well, okay? That's, that's just not... I told our group, I was like, what happens in Eastleigh stays in Eastleigh. We don't talk about this when we get home. So we're, we find ourselves stuck in this traffic, and, and what I'm realizing at this moment is in our van is our driver, our Kenyan church member, three American males, and about nine blonde-headed white American college-aged women. And that was it. Like, that's all I realized. And I felt like every eye in the crowd of the million or so people that were looking were looking at us. One guy actually, like, kind of like The Shining, he kind of walks up and puts his hand on the window. And, and he's got something that he's sniffing and he doesn't act in his right mind. I'll let you figure out and connect the dots there. And so what happened is that all at once the guys kind of without speaking shuffled back into the edge seats by the window as if I'm going to stop anybody, right? And, and the women are, are pushing over to one side. And you just, I just felt like this is really not a good thing. This is really not good. So what happened is that we for about 45 minutes sat and creeped around and finally got out and headed back to our hotel. Now, what took place over the course of the next few hours is that we all relaxed, right? Everybody kind of settled down. And so that evening, the guys and I are sitting out by the pool at the hotel, and we're internet surfing, and we're just like, oh, well, let's see what East Lee was. Because when we got back to the hotel, the driver took me aside. He goes, that was East Lee. I'm very sorry. Okay, what does that mean? And so I Google, and I start searching. Here's what I found out. East Lee is actually known as Little Mogadishu. It's a huge population of Somalian residents, 
Um, and actually, if you know the stories of the Somalian pirates, everybody's heard those stories, this is where they get, they get their money from Somalia off the coast. They send it to East Lee. That's, that's where a lot of them send the money. One website was actually so encouraging. It said East Lee is known as the Center for Human Trafficking in Africa. Oh, okay. So that changed my perspective. And here's what I realized in that moment. When you faced the threat of death, life is more valuable. That, that's what I learned. Have you ever been there? Have you ever recognized that when you face down a serious threat, you start to value life in a richer and more meaningful way? Friends, today, all over the world, right now at this point, we are joining together with millions and millions of other followers of Jesus Christ who are celebrating someone who faced down death and triumphed in life. Amen? That's what we're here to celebrate. Here's what I was thinking about. Easter is a little bit like Eastly for me. It's a place, it's a rhythm, it's a season that every year we return to to recognize the beauty and the hope of life that is offered in Jesus. But it's a place that we have to enter into in deep awareness because here's the thing, if you don't recognize the reality of death, you'll miss the value of the life that Jesus offers. You'll miss what it's truly all about. So what I wanna share with you today is the end of the Easter story, and then I want to work backwards so that we recognize just exactly what these disciples, these early followers of Jesus had gone through. I think we could say it this way. We have to, to get to the joy by the pool. We have to understand Eastly. So here's what John 20, verse 19 says. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands, he showed them his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, I love this moment because it's the first time the disciples actually see the risen Jesus. If you know the story of John, you know that, that Peter and John had actually gone to the tomb with Mary Magdalene and they found that the body wasn't there and they didn't know what to think. But what it says in those verses is that Peter and John left. They went back to where they were staying, but Mary Magdalene stuck around and actually saw the Savior. But these disciples had not yet seen the Savior. They returned to where they were staying. They maybe felt something uneasy. They maybe felt afraid. But they didn't know really what was going on. So when we get to these verses, we find them locked in this room, afraid that something is going to come. Someone is going to arrest them. Someone's going to continue to do what they did to Jesus to them. And Jesus stands among them. I love that phrase. Jesus came and stood among them. Did you ever think about the options Jesus had for how he could have announced his resurrection? Like, what would you have done? If you came back from the dead, I think today we would have been like, oh, I'm going to get a lot of Instagram likes. I'm about to announce it. Facebook, here I come. Like, we're going to make it public. Jesus could have sent an email, right? I mean, he, he could have created an email and then sent an email. Who knows? But he could have skywritten, but he didn't. He enters into a locked room, and he stands among them. Have you ever had somebody show up in your life when you really needed it? You ever been at a point where something was falling apart, where maybe you were afraid or you were hurting, and, and somebody showed up? Who was it for you? I, I was thinking about it this week, and I remember a a point in my life where Carrie and I were, were in a place and I was walking through some pretty major failure. I was walking through a place where something had broken down and I, I kind of had to let all my friends and all the people that knew what was going on, all our connections in on this. And so I sent this big email just explaining what was taking place and what was happening. And it was one of those emails that's really hard to send. Like I deleted it like 12 times. How am I gonna say this? Because it was almost like public transparency saying, here I go, I'm gonna fall apart. 
And I remember immediately, of all those people, there were two people alone that immediately called or immediately emailed me back and said, let us share our stories with you. They showed up. They were geographically far away, but they showed up in my life. They came. See, this is the beauty of the resurrection moment for these disciples. In the midst of their fear, in their confusion, Jesus comes to them, and he comes and he proves his life. He steps into their moment of terror with his life to show a new way forward. And I gotta tell you, this is what Easter is all about. But it's not the fullness of Easter unless you realize truly what they had been through. It's not the fullness of joy unless you sense their pain. Look at John 13, verse one. We'll have it on the screen. Here's what it says. It says, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you knew you had a week left to live or a day left to live, who would you gather around you? Who would you have beside you? Jesus pulls his disciples together. He washes their feet. He serves them. He predicts that all of them are gonna betray him. And then he begins to speak comfort to them. Look at John 14. Here's what he says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Now, I wanna be pretty transparent with you right now. Every Christmas and every Easter, as a pastor, there's an incredible pressure to come up with something cool to say. Okay, I'm just gonna be honest with you. And now, here's the deal, because here's what I know. Some of you, like, I haven't seen you all year, and you're going to be here on Easter, and we'll see you again at Christmas, and that's fine, but I'm just telling you, listen, I'm really good through the rest of the year. <laughs> For Christmas and Easter, I basically get one story to work with that i got to be creative with every year and tell it differently. And I just want to say this to you. I have never been impacted as I've prepped for Easter more than I was by reading those verses this year. That Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If you haven't been around New Community before, you may not know that my wife Carrie and I are in the process of adopting a child from Burundi, Africa. We started this process back in the fall, and we've, what I've learned is it's really slow, and I'm super impatient. Okay, my wife could have told you that I was impatient, but I didn't believe it. Now, I know it's true. So as we're waiting and we're filling out paperwork and paperwork, I'd like to fix their systems. They won't let me. Nobody's hired me yet. But I, here's what I've been recognizing. There are some really famous orphans in the world. Did you think about that? You ever think about that? Name some famous orphans. Just shout them out. Oh, see you, Annie. Thank you. That was that, another guy. But you were in the first service. You cheated. Okay, like three guys in the first service were like, Annie! I, I was blown away. What other orphans do you know about? Now, you're going to be disappointed when I tell you these, so you've got to think hard. Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist, well done. Any others? Orphans, foster care, anybody. How about Harry Potter? Oh, yeah. Pip from Great Expectations. Read a book, people. How about Superman was an orphan? Cinderella? Batman? Come on. The Dark Knight? Jane Eyre? Never read that book. James from James and the Giant Peach? Luke Skywalker? Yeah, Moses, the real guy, Moses. Yeah, Luke Skywalker and Moses are both orphans. So here's what I'm growing convinced of as I'm waiting for our paperwork to be finished. My kid's gonna be as awesome as Luke Skywalker. That's what I think is gonna happen, okay? I'm convinced because these orphans grow up to have heroic stories. And you know why I think that is? Because I think the child who grows up outside of a family understands more deeply the power of a family. I think that child has a richer understanding because when you experience loss and then you receive life, life is more precious. And I think they recognize that. I, I listened to the story this week of a, a writer named Lim Sisse. 
And he said he grew up in the United Kingdom as an orphanage, in an orphanage. And he said, you know what, you know all these famous orphans. He said, but in real life, for him and his friends, it wasn't like that. He said they didn't have heroic stories because he said this, they were, we were afraid to tell our stories because our stories had taken us captive. They had held us captive. Maybe we could say it this way. In the lives of those orphans, life had become all about loss. I'm so captured by this phrase that Jesus says because he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I won't leave you as orphans, but here's what that implies. For a while, you're going to be an orphan. For a while, you're going to experience loss. You're going to experience something, something temporary. I won't leave you there, but for a time, in fact, for at least three days, these friends of Jesus and the children of his heavenly father would be orphans. This, this is so captivating because in this way, this is what I think. Jesus wasn't in a hospital in intensive care. He wasn't hooked up to monitors. But this is his deathbed speech. This is the moment where he's looking at his friends and he says, listen, I'm not going to leave you. It's going to be hard because here's what I want you to know. You're going to experience death to understand life. And they did. These disciples entered the terror of East Lee more deeply than anything we could ever imagine. It was immediately following this peaceful dinner with Jesus where he promises not to leave them, that they're in the calm of a garden and suddenly the terror of these religious uh, uh, people coming to arrest Jesus enter in. It was a long sleepless night where they watched him put on trial, beaten and bloodied and finally nailed through his feet and through his hands to a wooden cross where he would suffer and die. They became orphans without their friend and rabbi over long and painful hours. It's Jesus. It's okay. It's all good. They experienced death to the core of their being. And I, and I think, here's what I think. When they experience death, I think we all know what death is like too. I think we understand that. See, listen, I, I don't care if this is your first time here and you're already planning what you're gonna eat for lunch and I don't care if you never miss a Sunday. I, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just glad you're here today because I believe this. In the next 10 minutes, I think you're gonna hear some things that have the power to transform everything about your life because here's what I know about every single person in this room, whether I know you or not, Every one of us knows what death feels like. Every one of us. Every one of us understands what it means to either lose someone physically, to lose someone relationally, to lose someone emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is, we know what it feels like to be orphaned by loss. You've been through brokenness. You've been through pain. You've watched relationships shatter. You've been abandoned by a friend. You've known the hurt, the betrayal, and the fear of repeated pain. And I believe in this very room, if we were to give space and time for every one of us to share our stories, we could spend hours finding resonance with each other and the commonality of our suffering. Some of you have literally lost family members. Some of you have lost hope. Death has touched every one of us. But, but here's my what if for the day. I, I try to give a what if every week. What if the taste of death is only going to lead you to a richer experience of life? See, today on Easter Sunday, we're beginning a, a series that we truly hope, listen, I, I truly hope you'll come back next week. It's this series that we've called, What Would Jesus Undo? How many of you know the bracelets, WWJ? Don't you wish you'd invented the bracelets? I'd be such a rich pastor. We'd have a nice building. You'd have a different pastor, but it would, it would be awesome. <laughs> See, that was written in a book in the 1800s. Somebody saying, what would Jesus do? What's this all about? But I'm not interested in what Jesus would do in this series. I'm interested in what Jesus would undo because I think many of us have conceptions, things that we think Jesus said that Jesus never said. I think we have things that we believe that Jesus might wanna undo. So I wanna know what frustrated Jesus, what set him on edge, what broke his heart. 
And the first of the things that Jesus would undo, he already undid. He undid death, amen? Jesus undid death, and he did it to bring us to a richer life. See, in the moments of his resurrection, in that small upper room, when he came to the disciples, he undid death and all its effects in their lives. And he's still undoing these things 2,000 years later. Very quickly, I want to give you four things that I think because Jesus undid death, these are now undone in our lives. Here's the first thing, loss. Loss is undone. See, whether the death you've experienced has been physical or relational or both, when it touches our lives, we all experience loss. We all grieve. These disciples mourn the loss of their Savior. They watch him suffer and die, and they feel the weight of that trauma. Everyone who's grieved in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. I began to share at the funerals that I performed this statement that I think has, more than anything, transformed how I understand grief and loss. Here's what it says. Grief is never a gun. It's a hurricane. See, grief is never a single gunshot that hits us and then we move on. It's a hurricane that swirls around us. And when we think we're doing well, it'll come back and hit us full force. It's something that we cannot get out from under. It haunts us. And here's the two words that I'm going to give you that are the most powerful words I'm going to say in this whole sermon. But resurrection. But resurrection. Resurrection calms the storm. Even when it hurts, there's a hope that someday, please don't miss this. And Paul Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. Now, we don't really understand this because we're not necessarily an agricultural society, but the Jewish people, when they would take a harvest, the first apple, the first grape, the first uh, whatever they gathered, the first fruit would be given back to God. And this, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam, all die. So when sin entered the world through Adam, all of us became captive to sin. Is there anyone in this room who would say you've never done anything wrong? If you do, you're lying and you just did something wrong. Welcome to the party. <laughs> as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But here's what it says. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, he gets the, he's like the line skipper. Right? He gets firsties. He gets to go first. He's the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. See, it's a taste of what to come. Resurrection is a taste that while you grieve, while you hurt, while you're brokenhearted, one day all will be made well. So if you're here on Easter listening to me preach about resurrection, wishing it were true for the losses of your life, can I love you from a distance and just say, please hang on. Please hang on. Because one day all will be made well. Jesus is the appetizer of a dinner like you've never imagined. It does not evade me that loss is real and pain is hell and we've all been through it. But it will one day get better. And we'll cling to that for you if you can't believe it on your own. Loss will be undone. Here's the second thing. Failure is undone. See, the other part of this story that I thought about speaking to today was how Peter failed Jesus three times. I love that story because I failed like 60 times, uh, more than that. And, and, and Peter fails. This guy that Jesus looks at and says, Peter, I'm gonna call you Rocky because you're gonna one day be the rock of my church. I'm gonna build everything on you. And then he says, you're gonna deny me. Peter says, no, I'm gonna deny you, you're crazy. He says, you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows. What rooster? Cock-a-doodle-doo, there it is. I screwed up. That's what's going on. And I thought about this. I thought, can you imagine Peter in that upper room after he looked at a child? The child, you can read this. The child says, weren't you with Jesus? Peter goes, no, I didn't know Jesus. And now he's in this upper room afraid that he's going to get arrested. And Jesus is standing there. And he says, I've come with peace. Be among you. And Peter's like, oh, great. Right? I thought he was dead. That was hard enough. Now he's back. And I got to deal with failure. That's what he's facing. See, I want you to know 
why I love this. Because when death is undone, failure is undone. When death goes away, failure goes away. And you know how I know that? Because failure kills us all. I'm standing before you as a living example of what that means. I have failed and failed again at this thing called life. I've hurt my wife. I've been short-tempered with my children. I know none of you struggle with that, but I've failed them. I've been quick to judge. I've been a hypocritical leader, a fault-filled pastor. And yet in the midst of my failure, I hold to the fact that resurrection is true. There's nothing about me that gives me the courage to stand up here and proclaim God's word every week other than resurrection triumphs my failure. That's what I believe. Because Peter, this guy who looked at a kid and lied, who lies to a child, all of you, (laughs) he looked at a child and lies. And then just weeks later, he's standing before a crowd of thousands proclaiming the gospel message and 3,000 people come to Jesus as their savior. Tell me failure's not undone in resurrection. Can I just give you the good news? Listen, you cannot fail so far that grace is ever out of your reach. You can't do it. The truth of resurrection is that there's a savior with a deep passion to restore to you confidence and faith, not because of who you are, but because of what he's done, because of what he's undone. If you walked into this church today because this is the time of year, somebody makes you feel so guilty if you don't come to church, and I'll take you to lunch if you come to church. If you walked in here scared to death that it's gonna be another message of guilt, I just wanna set you free from that because I know a savior who's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And I want him to encourage you, to instill courage into you today. Here's the third thing. Suffering is undone. See, loss is undone, failure is undone, but also suffering is undone. See, the horrors of the Easter story show us that Jesus has undone suffering. The pain of his journey to the cross is unimaginable. It was a sovereign choice, an act of self-will that painted a portrait of a God that our current world needs to know. Our current world believes God to be distant and angry and removed from all the suffering that we face. What I'm saying the resurrection does, the crucifixion does, is shows us a God who says, I will enter into the suffering with you. I will not leave you. Many of you, I know your stories. I know parts of your stories, and I know they're hard. I know they're painful. I know they're full of horror and evil and abuse and addiction and brokenness and hell on earth, and I know you've suffered. And and for many of you, I don't know your stories. Nobody does. And you continue to suffer in silence and secrecy and in seclusion, locking away the hurt, hoping that it might ease up just a bit. But the story of resurrection is this. No matter how you lock a Savior out, he's gonna find a way in. Amen? I love that. I love that they're in the upper room. The door is locked. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, what's up? I just think they were like, what happened? We locked the door, and now he's here. What? He won't be locked out. My prayer for you suffering today is this. I pray that Jesus would press through your walls with the force of a lover. I pray that he would enter in as the hound of heaven and press in on you and keep you from running away because on the other side of suffering is a Savior who has suffered beside us all the while. And been there the whole time. Isaiah 53 says it this way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It's in his wounds that we're healed. Here's the last thing. Fear is undone. See, the final thing that Jesus offers to us in the resurrection is that hope that fear would be undone. You see, the disciples were not locked away in that room because they wanted to have a cool meeting. They were not locked away because it was small group Bible study time. They were locked away because they were terrified. 
They were so scared. They were afraid that the arrest of their friend was only the beginning of their own terror. They were scared that this empire, this Roman empire, would continue to beat down the Jesus movement by coming after them next. And we know this terror, don't we? Here's what I think. I think we live beneath an empire of fear today. I think we live in a world that says, if I can keep them afraid, then I can keep them tuned in. If I can keep them scared of what's happening, whatever side they're on, whatever view they have, if they just keep thinking there's all these threats, then we'll be okay. Maybe for you, terror is real in very personal ways. Maybe for you, terror stares you down every time you look in the mirror, wondering, asking, do I measure up? Am I worthy of love? Is someone else gonna leave me? And your terror feels like a constant companion that you've simply grown accustomed to living with. See, here's what I know about this story. When the disciples and us, all of us, have been crushed with loss, crushed with failure, and crushed with suffering, the only thing that's left is a state of perpetual fear. When all those things enter in, all we know how to do is be afraid. And friends, this is the good news because the same writer who wrote the story of Jesus and John coming in among them writes in another book called 1 John. He wasn't very good at titles. But in 1 John 4, he says this. Some of you get that later. He says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out. Now, this is not nice Christian language. It's not like, well, they escorted him out because it was uncomfortable for everybody involved. Fear's not nice, so we showed him the door. We gave him a ministry partner. and No, they threw it out. Perfect love throws out fear because fear has to do with punishment. I think John writes this. I think he's sitting there. He's writing, what does love do? What does love? Oh, I remember that upper room. I remember how scared we were. I remember when we looked up and Jesus was there and all the fear that we had was gone. Perfect love drives out fear. I love that. See, Jesus undoes death to offer a new way of life. A life without grief, but rather eternal hope. A life where failure is replaced with forgiveness. A life where suffering is met with compassion. A life where fear is replaced with courage and purpose. And I wanna show you as we close this one more time, these two verses. Here's the first one. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will what? Come to you. And then a couple chapters later, here's what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus did what? He came and stood among them. You see, he says something. He says, I'm gonna come to you. Don't be afraid. And then, guess what I did? I came to you. He says, I'm gonna do it. And then he does it. I'm gonna do this. And then I do it. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. This took me years to religiously, theologically capture this. Jesus does what he says. And don't we forget it. (laughs) I love this because Jesus says, I'm gonna come and then he shows up. See, I wanna tell you this. You can only be an orphan as long as you see yourself as an orphan. Somewhere out there, we're trusting this, we're believing this. God knows a child that is gonna belong to our family. And my prayer is that one day that child will grow up and have a moment or a series of moments where that child goes, I'm not an orphan anymore. I'm not an orphan, I've got a home, I've got a family. Here's, Here's the thing, friends. You have to accept that you've been adopted as well. I think Jesus walks in this room to his 11 disciples. He says, listen, I know you've failed. I know you've suffered. I know you're afraid. I know you've seen suffering. I know all this stuff. But let me ask you, you're adopted now. Will you believe it? This is the question that I want to put before you today. Why are you living in an orphanage of your failure, your grief, your suffering, and your fear when you've been adopted? Why are you living in that place when you've been adopted? Today, you have a Savior. And Josh, you can go ahead and come standing in the same room as you, asking, will you accept 
my adoption? Will you believe in a God who is not mad at you? Will you trust a savior that wants to give you beauty in the midst of your grief? Will you allow grace and forgiveness to replace your failure? Will you hang on just one more day and find Jesus on suffering on the cross so you don't have to? Will you surrender fear for the courage that only a Messiah can give? Friends, I wanna say this. Resurrection means something different for those who believe. So if you're here as a guest or you're here and you've been here for a while and you just would say, I'm not a Christ follower, I've just been checking this thing out. Here's what I wanna know, I wanna tell you. Today I'm asking you to enter in this moment with intentionality, to hear a God and a Savior that maybe this is new for you, that's saying, will you accept that I'm adopting you? Will you accept that I'm loving you? Will you accept that you were orphaned by fear, by failure, by loss, by suffering? Will you accept that I have grace that's unending and mercy and compassion? And no matter what the preacher told you of your childhood, no matter what the religiosity of your childhood told you, I'm not mad at you. Would you listen to Jesus for a while instead of the pastors? Would you trust that? Friends, here's what I'm gonna do in a few minutes. I'm gonna pray. And I'm gonna ask you if if God is speaking in that way to you, if you think he's speaking, he's calling you to follow him. I'm gonna ask you to pray with me in your own words, your own heart, your own mind. And then I'm simply gonna ask if you prayed that prayer for the first time that you would raise your hand. Nobody's gonna be looking around but me. I just simply would affirm with you, yes, this this is your moment. You've put your trust in Christ. Maybe you've been away from Christ for a long time and this is a moment to come back. I'm gonna ask you to put your hand up. I'm gonna pray for you and that's it. We're not gonna make you feel uncomfortable. We're not gonna do anything weird we're just going to pray with you. Because here's what I believe. You have the greatest invitation to not only eternal life. Listen, he undid death. So as a follower of Christ, when I die physically, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid because I have the promise of eternal life. But he also promised abundant life. That if you entered into here today looking for meaning and passion and purpose, and that God will display that. He'll help you begin to understand that. That's why we've put a wall in the back. It says this, new life means... And I'm asking you guys to build some art today. What does new life mean for you? There's chalk back there. Here's what we're gonna do this week. We're gonna put it out on the street as a living testimony to our community. Here's what new life means. And they get to participate too because we're declaring resurrection today. I want you to see this video. Go ahead and play it, Sam, if you would, as, as we close. This is from an island off the coast of Greece called Vrantados. And every Easter, here's what happens. Two churches celebrate their Easter resurrection in a really cool way, and I thought we should do this this year. Everybody shot me down. They shoot rockets at each other. Wouldn't that be awesome? I was like, egg hunt, what? Let's get bottle rockets. (laughs) Because on the eve of Easter, here's what they do. They fire these rockets for hours and hours and hours all through the night, trying to hit the bells of the rival church. Wouldn't that be cool? I got the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Episcopalians all within reach. We could do some great stuff. But I watched this video and I thought, you know, man, what if, we, what if we started to live resurrection like this? Not actual physical rockets, but actually rockets in our heart that said, we're not gonna, we're gonna trust. We're gonna declare Easter. We're gonna walk out of this building declaring Easter with our lives, that death has been undone, amen? That death has been undone, that we have a savior who walked into the tomb, who beat up death and came out and said to the five foot eight nothing guy, you don't have any more bullies to be afraid of because I defeated death, it's over, it's done. You don't have to worry about it. I love these images because it's resurrection, it's life being brought back to dark places declaring across the land that death has been undone. Let's pray together.